Well, hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Outside Football Podcast, the podcast that champions international football away from the spotlight. Uh, my name's Cameron Pope, I'm your host and I'll be taking you through the next hour or so as we look back on a rather peculiar story that might just have passed you by. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter, we're at, at OutsideFooty, that's footy with a Y. Uh, I'm at, at CamPopeSport. Follow us for latest updates of international matches going on around the globe and news on further episodes. So the way this is going to work is each episode we're going to focus on a different story from somewhere around the globe, always to do with uh, international football, bringing things that you know may have passed you by, uh, stuff that you find interesting and you know if anyone's got any suggestions, things you want included, drop us a DM, get in touch, anything. A few ideas along the way so far, I hope you enjoy this first episode. So without further ado, let's get on the way. Every four years, FIFA's flagship tournament rolls around with its cascade of colour and culture. The world's biggest sporting carnival, and yes, Olympics, it's bigger than you, transfixes global audiences for a month as the game's elite vie to write their names into the annals. In total, 79 national teams have appeared at World Cup finals tournaments, ranging from stalwarts Brazil, with a perfect record of 21 qualifications, right down to one-timers Iraq, Israel and Indonesia, with Qatar set to become the 80th and newest member of the club in 2022. But today, we're not here to discuss any member of that list. Instead, our focus for this first ever episode of Outside Football Podcast takes us to the heart of the world's largest and most populous continent. At its centre, we find one of just two doubly landlocked countries in the world. Home to 33 million people is the Central Asian nation of Uzbekistan. The area was first settled by Eastern Iranian nomads nearly 3,000 years ago and has since formed part of the empires of first Alexander the Great and later the formidable Genghis Khan. In slightly more recent times, namely the early 20th century, the territory was gradually swept up by Russian expansion across the continent and Uzbekistan would remain under its control for nearly 70 years. It's after these 70 years that today's story starts. By mid-1991, the once great Soviet Union was crumbling. Ukraine, one of the Union's biggest powers, had joined Latvia, Georgia and others in breaking ranks, and the end was in sight. On the 31st of August, Uzbekistan became the ninth breakaway state, beginning its time as a fully independent nation. Just four months later, the USSR would cease to exist altogether. This period of history brought drastic change to the geographical and socio-political makeup of Asia, but it also changed the face of its footballing landscape too. A number of new states had sprung up and needed representation on the world stage. And while the CIS side was rapidly formed of ex-Soviet team players in order to fill the place of the already qualified USSR at Euro 92, no Uzbek players had made the list. For the first time, Uzbekistan would be able to join global football without ties to Moscow. In June 1992, while their former compatriots were ending their stint as an international footballing entity, the lives of five new national teams were just getting started. The newly formed sides of Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and of course Uzbekistan were taking part in a tournament of their own. FIFA had set up a competition between former Soviet states to give them a first taste of senior action and as a result, the Central Asian Cup tie in the Tajik capital of Dushanbe was an independent Uzbekistan's first ever international. Well, sort of. 
Igor Shkivrin and Rustam Abdullayev twice gave Uzbekistan the lead, though they were twice pegged back, drawing 2-2. This historic salt would soon be annulled, however, following the Tajiks' withdrawal from the competition. And so, 11 days later, the Uzbeks' first official competitive match would see them defeat their Turkmen neighbours 2-1. The Uzbeks would ultimately finish second to an unbeaten Kazakhstan, but it mattered little. A new era of Uzbek football had begun, and the foundations for a voyage into the new world of international football had been set. One with ups and downs that few on that June day in 1992 would ever have envisaged. It would be 18 months until Uzbekistan took to the field again, but when FIFA and Asian Football Federation membership became official, the journey began in dramatic fashion. We are about to relive the past three decades of the Uzbek national team through the experiences of two men who've been there throughout it all. To help me tell this story, I first enlisted the services of blogger and aficionado of Asian football, Sivan John. He joined me from his home in Malaysia to share his recollections of one of FIFA's quirkiest member nations. Okay, um, basically my one of my most uh, prominent memories of uh, Uzbekistan is definitely when the first time I the name of this country came came to my mind. Uh, that was in the 1994 Asian Games. And uh, if you if you can go back and have a look at, at the groups, uh, you'll probably realize that Malaysia and Uzbekistan were drawn in the same group. And at that point of time, you know, I had no clue about them. I think, in fact, most of the Malaysian public had no clue about uh, who are these guys or where do they come from. The 1994 Asian Games, an Olympic-style multi-sport event held in Hiroshima, Japan, was no invitational tournament. This was pan-continental football. The seriousness with which the 18 participating nations took the competition can be seen from the fact that 17 of them directly ignored the Asian Federation's suggestion that only under-23 sides should be fielded. In the end, Saudi Arabia were the only entrants not to bring their first string. Facing, for the first time, senior national teams from outside Central Asia, debutants Uzbekistan were about to learn where they stood in relation to their peers. And it would certainly turn up a few surprises. In the opening match of Group B, Uzbekistan powered the way past Saudi Arabia, with four first-half goals in a 4-1 route, sending the White Wolves to top spot. Sivan's Malaysia and then Hong Kong were duly swept aside before a nine-goal thriller against much-fancied Thailand saw the Uzbeks clinch a 5-4 victory, finishing the first stage with a perfect record. A team of complete unknowns, representing a country that, until two years prior, didn't even exist, had somehow blown away the first wave of opponents. Asia was confused, in more ways than one. Seeing them actually playing against Malaysia and beating us by five goals to nil, uh, that was mind-blowing enough. But I think what was even more mind-blowing is the fact that, you know, that we're talking about the Asian Games and you had a group of players that were very distinct. They had a European look, This, you know. So it was a bit of a, a culture shock or something like that. Like, we were wondering, like... Since when, you know, Europeans were allowed to compete in the Asian Games? This stellar form continued into the knockouts. The quarter-final against Turkmenistan was over before the interval, with the Uzbeks charging to a 3-0 win in just half an hour. Next up, however, was the Uzbeks' toughest adversary yet, a South Korea side fresh off the back of a World Cup Finals appearance. This one would indeed be a close affair. The game remained goalless for over an hour, until Azamat Abdurahimov with his fourth goal in five games, put the underdogs into an unlikely lead. The star Koreans were unable to react, and incredibly, the brand new team from Central Asia sailed through to the final of their first ever continental tournament. There, they faced China, in what should have been another close tie. 
It wasn't. Uzbekistan led inside two minutes for Igor Gavirin and never looked back, running out 4-1 winners. The Turanians had become Asian Games champions without barely having broken sweat. And from nowhere, the Asian football hierarchy had been given an almighty dig in the ribs. After when they won the gold medal, which they won it in East, and that's when we began to learn a little bit more about Uzbekistan, including all the other Central Asian, and we discover, you know, the, the reason behind that, that uh, distinct European look, because they've been under the Soviet Union for so many years. So, you know, there is some, you know, culture mix, something going on over there. The Asian Games win was a golden moment for Uzbekistan football, cementing the Uzbeks onto the continental map and earmarking them as a force to be reckoned with. Frustratingly though, it would be a while before they had the chance to maintain their dominance. 1994 saw the White Wolves go unbeaten, but the following year saw them line up just twice, with two defeats to Africa Cup of Nations winners Nigeria in the Afro-Asian Championship, a now defunct biennial tournament that pitted each continent's champions against one another, home and away. But in 1996, a year in which European fans were looking to England for the iconic Euro 96 competition, Uzbekistan and the rest of Asia had their sights on the continent's other major trophy, the Asian Cup. This tournament, held in the UAE, will be Uzbekistan's first taste of continental action since the heroics of Hiroshima, and a strong finish would prove to their neighbours that the Asian Games gold medal was no fluke. But first, they had to get there. The qualifying phase was to be unusual. 33 nations were involved, drawn into 10 groups, some of four, some of three. The Uzbeks were put into Group 8, alongside Tajikistan and Bahrain. However, the Bahrainis withdrew before the matches got underway. Rather than replace them with a team from a 14 group, the AFC decided to leave the group as it was, in essence making Group 8 a bizarre two-legged playoff for a place in the finals. The two remaining contenders would face off in Dushanbe in May 1996, before sealing the affair in Tashkent a month later. The Uzbeks, ranked 99th compared to the Tajiks 166th, were going into the doubleheader as overwhelming favourites. The first leg was to be held at Pamir Stadium, the home of CSKA Pamir Dushanbe, Tajikistan's most successful club. Although late to bloom, CSKA was certainly an up-and-coming side at the fall of the USSR. They reached the Soviet Union's hallowed first division in 1989 and held their place for its final three seasons, reaching the semi-finals of the last ever Soviet Cup. Pamir Stadium had become something of a fortress throughout their stay in the elite league and in May 1996 the Uzbeks arrived in the same stadium that had seen Spartak Moscow thrashed 5-1 a few years before. Indeed, members of that Pamir side had stuck around and were in the national squad who would be cheered on by 20,000 fans in what was their first competitive home international. The Tajiks fielded a strong side. Six of their starting 11 played their club football in the strong Russian league that had succeeded the top league. Uzbekistan, on the other hand, arrived in Dushanbe with a weakened team. Star strikers Abdurahimov and Shkivirin, and another overseas-based talisman, Mirjalal Kozimov, who'd scored against Liverpool that season in the UEFA Cup, were all unavailable. Things went wrong for Uzbekistan right from the off. Ahead from the third minute after a Kakim Fazilov penalty, the hosts dominated. Two goals in as many second-half minutes stretched the lead to three, and the Uzbeks' woes were compounded when Arsen Avakov made it four just before half-time. 
The reigning Asian Games champions have been taken apart on their return to the continental scene and have received their heaviest ever beating. Their Asian Cup hopes look desperately bleak, to say the least. The second leg, all but a dead rubber, came around six weeks later. The defeat in Dushanbe had been an embarrassing one, and it showed. Only 15,000 fans filed into a 60,000 capacity stadium in Tashkent. In order to advance to their first Asian Cup, the Uzbeks would need to win by five clear goals, and belief was at an all-time low. However, the home faithful had three reasons to smile. Abdurayimov, Shkvirin and Kazimov had re-entered the fray. At least they'd be watching a full-strength side. The star trio's importance to the team was made crystal clear right from the off, as the game started just as the first encounter had begun, with a penalty, this time to Uzbekistan, which Kazimov duly put away. One nil. On eight minutes, a good start became a great one. Sergei Andreev got a second, and the arrears were halved. Could they? Panic set in for the Tajiks. Coach Abdullah Muradov took drastic measures, using all three substitutes within the first half an hour, but the collapse continued. The visitors conceded a second penalty, and Kazimov made no mistake. 3-0. By half-time, the impossible was well and truly on. A buoyant Uzbekistan went out in search of the all-important equaliser. Surely it would come. But the minutes ticked by. The hour mark came and went without a goal and the beleaguered Tajiks edged nearer to the finals. And then, with 72 minutes on the clock, it happened. Igor Shkvirin notched the fourth for Uzbekistan, tying the group standings. Goals scored, four. Goals conceded, four. Points, three. Extra time would be needed to decide who went through. It could be said that the Tajiks were lucky to make it to 90 minutes. They had scarcely been in the game. But their fortune ran out just two minutes into the extras, when double Russian league champion Rashid Rakimov received a second yellow card. The hosts were already in the ascendancy and now had a man advantage. The winner was all but inevitable. And sure enough, two minutes later, it came. Teenage substitute Zafar Musabayev striking the golden goal blow. Game over. Uzbekistan had pulled off the unlikeliest of comebacks. On their knees after the game in Dushanbe, the White Wolves had netted five goals without reply and would appear at the finals in the UAE. Heartbreak for Tajikistan. To this day, they are still waiting for their first Asian Cup Finals appearance. So, yeah, I was still following them back then, but I, I didn't get to see the games because, uh, you know, we don't, we don't really have uh, that much of live footage of what was happening throughout Asia at the time. There was only limited information available for us. Uh, yes, I, I remember that qualifier I, uh, where they were losing 4-0 in the first game then came back to win 5-4. Uh, but during those years, you know, it was, it was a very wilderness time when you think about not just Central Asian football, but even football in Asia. The fact is that we we don't get uh, we don't have that much of exposure of, of when it comes to football, even in our own continent, unlike what it is today. 
Unfortunately, the heroics of the Tajikistan tie would count for little when the final tournament came around. Uzbekistan lost all three of their warm-up friendlies, before falling a long way short of defending their continental title, as they crashed out in the group stage with just one win and two losses to their name. A late concession against Syria on the final day robbed them of the point they needed to progress, with goal difference seeing them finish bottom. But there was no time to wallow in self-pity. The most important tournament of all was on the horizon. France 98. Qualifiers would begin in April 1997, in the form of a first group stage. 36 Asian teams were divided into 10 groups, the winners of which would fill two final groups of five. After home and away ties were complete, the winners would grab themselves a ticket to Paris. The runners-up would face each other for the right to take on the Oceanian champions. To tell this first chapter in the White Wolves World Cup history, I spoke to Berzod Nazarov, a lifelong fan and journalist and media man at Paktikor Tashkent, Uzbekistan's answer to Juventus or Bayern Munich. His journey with the national team began as a child, watching his country do battle with Yemen, Cambodia and Indonesia in that preliminary qualifying stage. Yes, uh, when our national team began uh, its participation in World Cup qualifiers, qualifiers I had, I think, uh, nine, nine years here. I remember our first game, it was against Yemen in Yemen. It was full of stadium. Uh, I watched game uh, by TV and we scored a goal from penalty and we won the game 1-0. It was the uh, first historical game for Uzbekistan and uh, Numan Hasanov scored the penalty kick. I remember it and uh, at the time I have a dream to see my national team in World Cup. I watch football matches from my 6-7 years because of my father. He also is interested in Swiss football. And me too, I played football and I watched all football games uh, at the time. And my dream was to see really my national team in France because it was first uh, qualifiers for us. The Wolves would make light work of the first group phase, with five wins and a draw in a six-match campaign which saw them hit 20 goals and concede just three. The final group, the key to France, beckoned. In our first participation we had uh, very great very great players and very strong players, but as a team, I think we had no enough experience to participate and to win uh, such games. Our opponents were in the last stage, Japan, Korea Republic, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan at the time played uh, for Asia. And uh, first team was uh, United Arab Emirates, UAE. Uh, and really, we played first hour for four games very, very unsuccessful. We lost to Japan 6-3, we lost to Korea in the last minute. And we played draw with Kazakhstan and we lost game to United Arab Emirates in Tashkent 3-2. It was also a historical match because it was first match uh, in the last stage and it was Mirjalal Kasimov, uh, if you know, he's our football legend in Uzbekistan and it was his return to football after one and a half or two years a serious injury and in this game also the Paktakor Stadium was full of his spectators we began that game very good we scored goal but after it we couldn't score from penalty because yes Mirzal Kasim couldn't score from penalty then we had a red card and we lost the game in the second half and uh, you know it was uh, very very I don't know 
a successful memory for me that game with the United Arab Emirates in the first participation. It was, I don't know, I cried as the day. <laughs> I remember it. That's something we've all done on at least one occasion, I'm sure. Four years later, and no longer newcomers, a wiser and more seasoned Uzbekistan returned to World Cup qualification, once again coming through the first phase unscathed, with four wins and two draws. This time, however, the stakes were higher. 2002 would see the World Cup travel to Asia for the first time, with Japan and South Korea securing the shared right to stage the event. With these two giants of the Asian game qualifying directly as host, that left the door to the World Cup wide open for teams like Uzbekistan. Uh, because of China and South Korea, we had very good great chance at the time. We had in group UAE, Oman, China and one more team. And uh, really we played some good matches in this stage, but uh, I don't know, we had uh, some naturalized players from Russia. It's Maminov, Pashinin. Our goalkeeper Polyakov, and here we had very good, good chance at the time, but I don't know why we couldn't play good quality football at the, at the games. Really, it was very, I think, uh, easy way for the World Cup in Uzbek football history, I think, because when you have no opponents like Japan and South Korea, it's a very great chance, really. The Uzbeks went into the final stage unbeaten in 11 games, their longest ever run. So it was rather anticlimactic when the White Wolves suffered a heavy 4-1 defeat in their opening qualifier. On paper, the contest should have been evenly matched, just three places separated the sides in the FIFA rankings. But in reality, the Uzbeks were schooled in Abu Dhabi. With a five-team group looking like a three-horse race between Uzbekistan, the UAE and China, the ramifications of this loss could be huge. Home wins against less fancy Qatar and Oman steadied the ship for the Uzbeks, but defeat to China in September 2001 effectively killed any hope of automatic progression. China had been ruthless, their drawing Oman the only points dropped out of four games. At the halfway stage, the White Wolves sat second, enough, should they see out the last four games, for an AFC playoff spot against the runners-up from the other qualification group. A second loss to the UAE, though, saw the Emiratis overtake the Uzbeks, who let a late lead slip versus high-flying Qatar to leave themselves tied for third, two points behind the Qatari Maroons. And so, just two games remained. Winless Oman, and already qualified China. Two wins meant progression could be decided on goal difference. Uzbekistan's tally bettered that of the UAE by just one. The Wolves were in pole position, but it was tight. However, on that night in 2001 as Uzbekistan lined up against the man, the constellations seemed to be aligning. The Uzbeks, who had cruised to an emphatic 5-0 victory when the sides met in Tashkent, raced into a two-goal lead in the return fixture. At half-time, they sat second in the group. And then, disaster. After the interval, the visitors never got started. A free header in a six-yard box and a Fauzi Bashir shot that beat the goalkeeper at his near post wiped off the commanding lead within seven minutes of the restart. Desperately chasing the win, the Uzbeks pressed for the goal that would keep their qualification dream alive. But all-out attack left them exposed, and the unlikely Amani struck twice late on, stealing a first win in the competition. Fate was now out of Uzbekistan's hands. Qatar were out of the running, but the UAE had one foot in the playoff. They needed just one point against Amman. The Uzbeks, therefore, had to beat formidable China, and pray Amman could prolong their newfound momentum and overcome the UAE. And the drama would come late on. Yeah, uh, we played against China last game, 
he should have scored last minute winner goal, but uh, UAE, I think with Oman they played, they even, I think, were losing 0-2 during the game, but they equalized the result in the last minutes and they played playoff games. The jubilant scenes after a 90th minute winner from FC Rostov Nikolai Shershov were soon cruelly muted by the news that the UAE had come from two goals behind against a resilient and plucky Amman side to level the game, thus edging out the Uzbeks in brutal fashion. If the last minute failure of 2002 had been a bitter pill to swallow, it would be nothing compared to the heartbreak of the 2006 edition. Um, of course, the infamous <clears throat> World Cup qualifier for, for, the, for the World Cup in Germany 2006, uh, the playoff against Bahrain, you know, it's till today, it's, to me, it's, um, I, I think, you know, it's just one of those what if uh, moments in football that I can, uh, I can think of, yeah. The fact that even the 2006 qualifier didn't go according to plan for Uzbekistan, you know, I think they had a disaster start in their, in their final group group matches before the playoff. I think at the time we began stage with German coach Jürgen Gede, but we lost some games and before the last game's group stage, last group stage, Bob Houghton came to lead our national team. Uh, it was just a, a miraculous win against Kuwait on their last game in which they were losing by two goals to nil, but they came back to win 3-2, which earned them a place in the playoff against Bahrain. Against Kuwait in Tashkent, his last game, if you want the game, uh, we would qualify to the playoff stage. And I remember the game, Kuwait scored very two early goals, two early goals, and then we scored three goals. Uh, and it was also yeah, a very, very historical match, I remember it, because uh, it's the biggest problem, I think, in our national teams and clubs also, for our football. When you consider the goal first and then second, I cannot remember when we won the games. And it was, I remember, against Kuwait. From 0-2, we made it 3-2 in the second half. It was yeah, a very, very, very great game. Right after that, I kind of felt that, you know, there was some momentum in their favor. You know, they were starting to pick things up. You know, there was things were starting to look very good and promising. And of course, you know, they managed to get, you know, at least a 1-0 win against Bahrain, which I think would have been a huge advantage going to the second leg in, in Manama. But uh, then we played with Bahrain in the playoff stage. In Tashkent, we won the game 1-0. It, it took me by surprise that, you know, that suddenly, you know, that when I heard from a friend who said that, did you know what happened, you know, the result between Uzbekistan and Bahrain has been forfeited by FIFA? But because of cancellation of penalty by Server Japara, plus Japan's referee Toshimitsu Yoshida, because of his wrong decision, we played one more time in Tashkent due to technical mistake of referee. I'm like, why? Why would that happen? And then, you know, <clears throat> the story about, you know, the referee not awarding the penalty, giving a free kick, making a technical mistake and all that. And suddenly the game was decided to be replayed. And, you know, as soon as that happened, I really had a bad feeling. It's like, you know, looks like it's not going to happen again for them. At the end of the game, we played 0-1-1, Bahrain 0-0. And we missed the chance because of 
I think our and Rachel's decision. Truth to be told, yes, you know, they drew one all at home. They could only earn a goalless draw in Manama, which allowed Bahrain to qualify for the next playoff against Trinidad Tobago. But looking back, you know, I can only think, you know, how close they were. You know, they, they looked like they were very close, but yet, you know, still, there's always this something that happens at the most critical stage that, you know, tends to, you know, just take away that, that opportunity from them, just like that. In agonising fashion, Uzbekistan had been deprived of a 2-0 lead in the most crucial game in their history. A successfully converted penalty, put away with the score already at 1-0, was disallowed due to the encroachment of two white Uzbek shirts. But instead of the mandatory retake in such situations, the Japanese referee inexplicably awarded a free kick to the Bahrainis. An incensed Uzbek Football Federation appealed to FIFA, requesting that the score be recorded as a 3-0 win. But the world governing body refused, ordering, ironically, a retake of the whole game. This alarming case of sporting injustice came to a sad yet familiar end. A deflection gave Bahrain the lead and a crucial away goal when the sides met in Tashkent a second time. And despite a quick equaliser, the damage was done. Ultimately, it was the team from the Gulf that would progress. A tight affair in Manama producing no goals. For the second time in four years, Uzbekistan had been painfully eliminated. With the 2010 qualifying phase a non-starter, the Central Asian nation finishing bottom of the final group, it wouldn't be until the following tournament, Brazil 2014, that the White Wolves would compete again. Just as before, the first group stage posed few problems, and Uzbekistan sailed through to the final phase. Four teams, the group winners and runners-up, would qualify directly for the finals in Brazil. The third-place sides would face each other, before taking on tough Latin American opposition for a place at the finals. Going into the final group, the Uzbeks were ranked as the sixth strongest Asian side, but critically, China had failed to come through the earlier round, and therefore the White Wolves, 67th in the world, were technically the fifth most likely team to qualify. In other words, in line at least for a playoff spot. By the time when the 2014 campaign uh, came, you know, of course, again, there was this, this uh, little bit of hope that, you know, finally the Uzbekistan is going to make it to the World Cup, but... I think for someone who has followed them as long as I have, you know, I can always, you know, there's always this little bit of cautious that goes behind my head, like, you know, let's just wait and see, wait and see, because something will happen. If they were to go one better this time and reach their first World Cup finals tournament, they started off going about it the wrong way. It took four games for them to find a win. A 1-0 victory in Qatar, leaving them on five points from four matches but an Ulugbek Bakayev goal was enough to secure a vital three points against group favourites Iran. A 30-year-old Serva Jeparov consolidating the win with a match-winning strike against the Lebanon in the following encounter. Suddenly, the White Wolves had 11 points from six. Victory in Iran had been huge, and with two automatic qualification spots available, Uzbekistan's campaign had completed an about turn, and they were facing the reality of a World Cup appearance. With two games to go, South Korea and the Uzbeks occupied the top two both on 11 points, with South Korea leading by four on goal difference. Iran sat third, one point behind, one goal worse off than Uzbekistan. It was going to be a tense finale, and made all the more interesting by the fact that leaders South Korea still had to play both Uzbekistan and Iran. Uzbekistan would finish at home to Qatar, while Iran prepared to face Lebanon at home. So the White Wolves travelled to Korea knowing that victory would achieve the dream. They would have a place at the World Cup in Brazil. But if there's a pattern emerging here... 
it's definitely that Uzbekistan don't do qualification the easy way. Sure enough, it wasn't to be their day. Akmal Sharakmadov's own goal just before the interval handed the points, and the control, back to the Koreans. But there was still a chance. Uzbekistan were expected to beat strugglers Qatar, although they could do with doing so by a healthy margin. If South Korea won, Uzbekistan's route to Brazil was simple, they had only to win. A draw in Ulsan would mean Uzbekistan needed to win by four, in which case qualification would rest not on goal difference, but on goals scored. In all probability, this would see the Uzbeks through at the expense of Iran. Finally, if Iran were victors, Uzbekistan would need a win and at least a six-goal swing. South Korea had scored seven more goals, meaning it would probably need to be more. But none of this mattered if Uzbekistan didn't win themselves. And for the first hour of the game against Qatar, even this seemed unlikely. The Minnows had taken the lead in the first half, their host World Cup hopes descending into a Groundhog Day nightmare. But the tide would turn. The game was about to spring into life. After 61 minutes, Bakudin Nazimov turns home across and brings Uzbekistan level. The equaliser opens the floodgates and the goals begin to pour in. Oleg Zotiev pushes the White Wolves ahead with some brilliant solo play in the box, with Nazimov firing in another to bring the score to 3-1 on 74 minutes. With their fate resting on the result in Korea, the goals have to keep on coming, and to further crank up the pressure, there is bad news from Ulsan. Iran lead 1-0, the worst possible outcome for the Uzbeks. With the clock ticking down, Oleg Amadov scores the fourth, with Ulugbek Bakayev netting another in out of time. With the lead now standing at four goals, a goal for South Korea means Uzbekistan have finally made their first World Cup, condemning Iran to the playoffs on goal difference. Better still, if the hosts have managed to turn the score around and win, Uzbekistan could also pack their suitcases for Brazil. But as the full-time whistle blew in Tashkent, it was to be a familiar tale of anguish. The second half heroics have been in vain, that vital South Korea goal never came, and with Iran failing to add to their tally of one, that left the Uzbeks level on points with the Koreans but a goal worse off. The ever unfortunate Uzbekistan had come within touching distance of a group stage berth, never mind a playoff spot, but agonisingly they would be consigned to the two-legged scrap heap once again. It's the last hour to participation also, when we played last games against Qatar in the World Cup 2014, we won the game 5-1 and really we thought at the stadium, at Bunyatkar Stadium, we will go to World Cup but uh, in that game, South Korea lost to Iran, and our dreams really was finished. But we couldn't do it. Indeed, they couldn't. Three and a half hours of playoff action could not separate them and Jordan, with Uzbekistan bowing out again after a grueling 9-8 defeat on penalties. You know, uh, I think they had a couple of bad results in their last two games, which quickly took their... Um, but then again, you can only imagine, even if they made it to the playoff, they're going to end up playing against Uruguay, Luis Suarez and Edson Cavani, Uruguay, which I don't think they stand a chance at all. We're now almost caught up to the present day, but there is still one more cruel miss to regale. Up, foreboringly, against the fancied Iran and South Korea again in the final group, for much of the 2018 campaign, the playoffs looks Uzbekistan's best bet. But all that changed with a routine win over Qatar. In the same round of fixtures, lowly China took all three points against South Korea's Taeguk Warriors, who were now in the second automatic qualifying spot, just one point ahead of the Uzbeks. What's more, the two would face each other on the final day. And then, the momentum took a monumental swing in Uzbekistan's direction. 
a faltering South Korea were beaten 3-2 by bottom team Qatar. Only a point and a single goal separated Uzbekistan from the second-place Koreans. Two games were left to play, and the Koreans next faced Iran, unbeaten group leaders. That game would end goalless. A win away in China would leave Uzbekistan needing only a draw on the final day to send them not to a playoff, but to the World Cup. Could this be the moment that the 20-year World Cup hoodoo was finally lifted? Well, no. In the last couple of years also, when we played against, not the last three games, when we played against China, and we lost game because of penalty, and we couldn't score three or four really good chances. And when we played against Korea Public, we just need the victory. They had to beat South Korea at home. And they haven't beaten South Korea since that famous victory in Je- in Hiroshima in 1994. We just with just one goal, even in the last minutes, but we couldn't beat them. So you know, again, you know, it's always the element of luck that plays against them, and which is why I always look at them as the perennial chokers of Asian football. A stoppage time equaliser for Omar Al Sommer against Iran lifted Syria above the Uzbeks who would have clinched a playoff place against Australia as long as the Iranians won their tie. So, I don't know, it's maybe this year, maybe some unsuccessful for the Uzbekistan national team. But we couldn't do it. And I thought it was tough support in England. So that's the story of four near misses for a team who despite all their signs of promise, have always fallen at the final hurdle when it comes to World Cup qualification. So the only logical place left to look now is the future. Thank you for speaking so, so well about, about, about your memories of that time. And, and just looking forward perhaps to the future, do you, do you have many hopes for the current qualification period? It's now, uh, you know, uh, we have uh, for example, before some problems uh, organization for example to organize some training camps some friendly match for national team but now uh, i think we have better facilities and uh, now we made the last stage uh, the last step in the field not around the field i think because we have uh, better facilities now we are playing with good national teams in friendly games and I think the last step should by coaches, should by from players. And now, yeah, we had already lost two, two games to Palestine and to Saudi Arabia. And now we have s- little bit difficulties. But I hope we will be a minimum second in the group and we will go to the last stage. And in the last stage, I think every team has a equal chance because now we have enough experience to to play against any team in Asia. And I hope I hope uh, if we play our game and uh, if coach also coaching staff I mean made some right decisions we can go and uh, we can do it I think we are able to do it. I wish you, I wish you all the best, and uh, and, I, and I really hope that you know this can, this time can be the first time. And uh, just one final question for me, really. Um, we've seen 
since the breakup of the USSR, we've we've seen uh, certain nations go and play under other um, under other confederations. We've seen Kazakhstan move to UEFA. Do you think that the future for Uzbekistan's football team should remain uh, in Asia, or would you could you perhaps see a move to UEFA? I think uh, it's better to be in Asia for us because. For example, Kazakhstan, they are playing in UFA, but um, I don't know, yeah. They could play with some giants of Europe in the qualifying stage, but really they had no any chance to qualify to World Cup or even to European Championship also. And uh, if you want to improve, if you want to race, I think... Uh, there is no difference where you have to be in Asia or in Europe. We have to be our target. We have our plans, our goals to development of our football. And I think even in Asia, we can do some little, uh, I don't know, good future of well, thank you very much uh, for that, Bez. That's been a, it's been a real, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, and thank you so much for your answers and for for giving me your your insight into into what it's like to to follow the Uzbek football team. And I really I wish you all the best for this current World Cup qualification. I'll be I'll be keeping a, a close eye on on the team's progress, and I really hope this time is the one. Okay, also, and uh, I would like to also if you have any questions about Uzbek football, about Central Asian football. You can contact me, no problem. Lovely. Well, thank thank you very much for that, and uh, and and um, all the best to you, and, and take care. Okay, thanks. Good luck. To you. Thank you. Bye, bye. Well, what do you think the future holds for the Uzbekistan national team? Do Do you have any better aspirations, perhaps, to twenty twenty two Qatar World Cup? Well, uh, looks like you know again they seem to have taken a false start in their campaign. I think they lost to Palestine, and um, I'm not too sure what was the last two results, but I think they got a win against. Uh, one other team. Um, it all depends on how consistent they can be in the next remaining games. Um, I think you know that there is that still good chance that they could make it to the next stage of the World Cup qualifier. Uh, but then again, you know, once they get to that stage, you know, whether or not you know this generation of Uzbek players is good enough to be able to cope uh, playing against the likes of Japan, South Korea. Of course, you know, you're looking at Iran, you're looking at a, a rising uh, teams like, you know, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and all that. Uh, it, that, that depends because, <clears throat> to be honest, you know, when I look at the current crop of football players they have, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not as good as the team that I remember that I used to watch, you know, in the 2000s. You know, that back then, I think they really had some... Uh, some fabulous football players, potential game winners, or some players who can really change the game. Uh, so I don't really don't. I'm not too sure how the future looks like for them. Uh, I think the best thing I could I can hope for them is to uh, see them progressing for the next Asian Cup in China and see how they how how it goes on from there. Just uh, one final word, Saman. Is there uh, is there any um, in in the scope of Asian football? Um, obviously, Uzbekistan are very very new on the scene, having only become independent in the nineties. Um, you've mentioned a few names of teams that are upcoming now, perhaps the UAE, Qatar. Uh, is there anyone else that um, anyone who's interested in Asian football should uh, should be keeping their eye on in the next ten years? Would you say? 
Well, you know, if I were to, you know, uh, give people a glimpse of what Asian football could be like in the future, I think it would be best to look at Southeast Asia, the region where I'm living right now. Uh, you have, of course, you have uh, Thailand, which has been considered a king in the region for the past few years. You know, they, they, they've been the most, uh, one of the most improved team. You know, they did pretty respectably well in the last World Cup qualifier, despite, I don't, I don't think they won the game, but they did, you know, pretty much give a, a scare to teams like Australia and all that. So they're one of the teams to look out for. And of course, now the, the new kings of the region is Vietnam. They've won the AFF Suzuki Cup. And if you've been following Vietnamese football for the last couple of years, you would have realized there's been a trend where, you know, they've been doing exceptionally well in Asia. They made it to the under-23 final last year. They made it to the Asian Games semifinal. And even in the uh, last Asian Cup, they were the best team from Southeast Asia. So they look pretty good, pretty, you know, a pretty good team to look forward to. And of course, you know, my country, Malaysia, you know, we <coughs> just, you know, had a, I, I don't think we, we ever had this great start in the in a World Cup qualifying camping in a very long time. Or as I can remember during my lifetime, uh, you know, we're, we're looking so good right now. The fact that we beat Thailand, you know, we managed to get two wins against Indonesia. You know, we were just unlucky to lose against the United Arab Emirates. So for me, I think, you know, the next real deal of Asian football has to be in Southeast Asia because, you know, we are a region of close to half a billion people. And at the same time, you, you probably, and I don't have to tell you, you just need to go to YouTube and you'll probably see how immense the fan culture is in this part of the world. You know, how uh, huge is the ultras style of supporting football uh, culture here in Asia. You probably have seen the ones in Malaysia or the ones in Indonesia and Thailand and all that. So definitely, Southeast Asia is, it to me, I think it's the next real deal when it comes to Asian football. Oh, that's, uh, that's excellent. You know, it would be great to see some new Asian teams making it into the fold. But uh, well, thank you very much for um, your insights, Savannah. It's been really helpful to get um, a fan's perspective on things and, uh, and 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 see what it feels to to, to follow such a, an unlucky team. But yeah, really, thank you for your contribution today, and thank you for coming on. Well, thank thank you very much for having me in this podcast. You know, I mean, for me, it's uh, it's always a great pleasure when someone asks me to to share my views and talk about football. I mean, it's one of the best subjects I, I, I can really talk. I mean, we can talk about this for hours, so even 20 minutes is, is, is huge enough for me. So there we have it. A 28-year history of one of FIFA's unluckiest members. Time and time again, golden opportunity has given way to bitter disappointment, and yet still, the hope endures. Under Vadim Abdomov's stewardship, the Turanians sit top in the first group stage, with wins over Palestine, Singapore and Yemen, cancelling out two defeats. Uzbekistan are well poised once again to reach the final group stage. And from there, who knows? Well, there we go. Thank you very much for listening to the first ever episode of Outside Football Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed delivering it to you. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at at Outside Footy. That's footy with a Y. And uh, if you want to, follow me as well. I'm at Cam Pope Sport. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much. I'll keep your eyes peeled on the Twitter for the new release very soon. The next episode will be a special edition focusing on the 2020 Cunifa World Football Cup taking place in North Macedonia in Skopje at the end of May. Uh, before I go, I just want to say thank you to Bezod Nazarov, to Savan John, to the Australian Uzbekistan Football Supporters Association 
uh, Adam Pope and Sean Jones for all your help on this episode. Uh, I'm always welcoming feedback on the Twitter, so if you've got any comments to make, just uh, bomb me a DM. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time.